Welcome to 1514, a podcast of the Biblical Counseling Coalition. 1514 draws its name from Romans 1514, where the Apostle Paul encourages the church that they are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to counsel one another. I'm your host and the executive director of the BCC, Dr. Curtis Solomon, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. This episode is brought to you in part by The Gospel for Disordered Lives, a new book from B&H Publishing, authored by Kristen Kellen, Rob Green, and Robert Jones. Thanks for joining us for this episode of 1514. It's a delight to have you as part of our audience. On this episode of 1514, I was joined by Deepak Reju and Jonathan Holmes. These brothers both serve on the BCC Council, and they co-authored two books that just came out. The first book, Rescue Plan, Charting a Course to Restore Prisoners of Pornography, and the second book, Rescue Skills, Essential Skills for Restoring the Sexually Broken. had a wonderful conversation with these brothers talking about these excellent, excellent resources. We talked about what the books are, how they're distinct, how they overlap, how we might be able to use them in counseling and lots of other things related to the content of these books. I also had a wonderful conversation with them on the after show. The after show is a a special benefit to BCC partners. So if you're not a BCC partner, log on to biblicalcounselingcoalition.org, click on the donate button, and you can find out more about both becoming a donor and what it means to become a partner. Uh, If you're already a BCC partner, our new partner portal is up and running and active, and you should be able to log into that. You can create a custom web page for your ministry connected to our directory. Through that portal, you can also access the after show. You can also access special partner discounts and other things like that through the portal. Be sure to check that out and find out more. So thank you again for joining us for this episode. I hope it is a great encouragement to you and you have a wonderful, wonderful day. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us on 1514. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves to our audience? I'm uh, Jonathan Holmes, and uh, I serve as the pastor of counseling at Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio. And then I also serve as the executive director of Fieldstone Counseling. And I'm Deepak Reju. I'm a pastor of counseling and family ministry at Capitol Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. All right. And today I have you on because we're talking about your two new books, Rescue Skills and Rescue Plan. Uh, And these, for those who haven't check them out already. The subtitle kind of gives you, at least on rescue skills, gives you intro to what these books are about, essential skills for restoring the sexually broken. So brothers, what, what led you to write these two books uh, right now? Uh, Well, so I approached Jonathan actually at a BCC retreat of all places and asked him if he would join me in a project in coming up with a book that wouldn't be the typical book, which is the typical book is helping a struggler through their problems, but actually creating a helper book coming alongside the pastor, counselor, small group leader, best friend, parent of a teen, roommate, you go on and on down the list. The person is, who's standing right next to the person who's struggling and wants to be helpful, but doesn't know what to do or has tried things, but hasn't found much success. So that though, though I think strugglers will read and benefit a ton from what we've written. Our, our, our main goal is to help out those who are helping the ones who are struggling. And we want to get into the trenches with pastors, counselors, parents, best friends, accountability partners, that list of folks who are really trying to do good and earnest work and help them to know how to love faithfully, how to 
ask questions, how to help the weary, how to deal with addictions in general, and everything else that goes with it. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I'm excited to hear that it was at a, a BCC retreat that you guys had that conversation. Just a little plug there for, <laughs> I mean, it, it is what we try to do, bring people together and great things happen. So that's great. What, what made you decide Dee, to reach out and ask about or, or decide to co-author instead of just tackling this project yourself? Yeah. Well, I wanted the book to come from not just my vantage point. Uh, I wanted it to come from uh, two people because we'd both be able to add not only our our experience and our wisdom to it, but we also wanted to take it from a vantage point of like, what what if two pastors who have years of experience added up together? It'd just be all the more better. Writing with someone who you know really well or who you agree with theologically, or you have the same kind of framework in regards to how to care for people, actually turns out to be a delight. Writing with someone who you've got disagreements with turns out to be a major pain. (laughs) 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 In fact, let me make it worse. It's a nightmare to get through a writing project like that. So if, if you find the right person, actually it increases the ability to like grow in your, your like mindedness with each other to sharpen one another, to encourage one another. And behind all that is to build a friendship. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's wonderful. So Jonathan, maybe you could tell our audience how, so the, the two books are rescue skills, really equipping the person who wants to help and the rescue plan. How, how do the two books, what, how are they distinct, but also how are they intended to be used together? Yeah, Chris, it's a great question. Uh, and, and we've gotten that question a lot, you know, why two books? I, I would say Rescue Plan is really designed to kind of give you a big picture landscape of uh, what the fight and what the struggle uh, against pornography, what does that look like? We try to do, I would say, just a lot of world building. We try to build out a healthy theology of human sexuality uh, and how that's broken through our sinfulness and through addiction to porn. Uh, also in Rescue Plan, we actually try to address not just men, and that's I would say the typical audience, but we spend a lot of time addressing, I would say, some other distinct groups of people who struggle with pornography, whether it's women, parents, teens, and children. And then we also include a couple of chapters in there, quite an extended discussion on masturbation, which again is just probably not something that you're going to encounter a lot, especially in biblical counseling books. Rescue skills really grew out of our desire of not only wanting to give people a plan, but also equip them uh, to implement that plan. And so the first half of the book is written uh, really to, towards the, the helper, uh, just basic skills. I, I like to call them just soft skills that just any person, that whole entire list of people that Deepak uh, kind of listed off, just skills that you want to continue to grow in. And then kind of the second half of rescue skills is really aimed at the struggler, just different skills that they would want to grow in and that they would want to be equipped in uh, for the journey. Yeah, that's really, really helpful to, to see. And I, I think that the question, uh, <laughs> why two books is probably a lot of people think that, but I, I actually think it's really helpful to have the two books um, because you're accomplishing different things with them. And I encourage people, obviously, to, to get both and make sure you're familiar with both. Do you think maybe one of them would be more apt for the struggler to go through by themselves or are really both going to help and equip both both the counselor or the helper and the person who's struggling you know well, it i depends think on what you want yeah no it really does <laughs> really does. go ahead go ahead jonathan 
I was going to say, you know, I, I would probably start, especially if you're a struggler, I would start with rescue plan just because that's going to help. Again, it's going to help build out for you a healthy foundation uh, by which you can take the skills that you would learn later in rescue skills and really implement them. And so I think what we tried to do in rescue plan is we try to give you a paradigm. We try to give you a plan as to how to understand the struggle. And then, and then what do you do in the midst of that? So if, if you had to, you know, you know, push me to, I'd say, start out with rescue plan if you're a struggler and then move over to rescue skills. But like Dee said, regardless of where you're coming from, I think that you'll be equally helped by both. And uh, Curtis, one of the things with the rescue plan is people who are in specific stages might find a particular chapter useful. For example, if you're a girlfriend and your boyfriend just confessed that he's struggling, there's not really pretty much any material for the girlfriend uniquely out there, but we've got a chapter on pornography and dating uh, to go in there. Or for example, like a parent who's found out that their teenager has been looking at something and doesn't know where else to turn. Well, we've got a chapter specifically on teenagers and and dealing with. So there might be some very specific chapters that are, that might be helpful. I had a pastor who called me and just said, Hey, I know this is about two weeks before the book was out. Hey, I know the book's not out yet, (laughs) but I gave chapters on masturbation to this guy who's struggling. Uh, He said, I promise you'll buy the book after it comes out. (laughs) We hope. The point being, it's more like there are some very specific things in there in rescue plan that people may not even be ready to read the whole book, but they'll find out, oh, there's not a chapter out there for me, like the girlfriend who doesn't know what to do in the middle of a dating relationship. Or or the young guy who doesn't know where to go with his struggle, young guy or young gal, doesn't know where to go with their struggles with masturbation. Um, like we got more words on masturbation than I think any other book that's out there written by Bill Gounser. Yeah. And it's a, it's a prevalent topic. It's a, you know, and so definitely need, need more, um, information on that than less. So no, that's, that's fantastic. Jonathan, you already mentioned the two parts in rescue skills, kind of the, the skills for the helper and the skills for the person who's struggling. And one of the things I appreciated about you guys, um, the language you use is you, you really talk about that person as a discipler. Uh, and that's one that goes to that big question we ask in biblical counseling circles all the time. What, what do we call ourselves? And it, it really bypasses the baggage that sometimes comes with the biblical counselor, but biblical counselors would recognize that that would be for them as well. So Dee listed a whole bunch of people who could use this book, but what um, what would you say to our audience who are primarily biblical counselors about how they can get it and then also encourage them to get it in the hands of other people who aren't necessarily, you know, doing this full time as their job or other things like that? What, how can we encourage more people uh, than just our audience to be using these resources? Yeah, Curtis, I, you know, the word discipler and discipleship, I think we tried to use that at different points uh, in the book, especially in rescue skills. And kind of the point we try to make is, is this, is that especially in today's post-Christian, post-modern world, uh, the world and culture is going to be more than happy to sexually disciple uh, the people in our churches, the people in the pews, our children, our teens. And uh, we really, I think, have dropped the ball in terms of specifically targeting and addressing that area. And so I think in many ways, people are kind of left to themselves to figure out sex, to kind of come up with a theology of sex that they either uh, learn through friends, through crude jokes, through pornography, through whatever movies in culture. And I think that the church has 
just lost an opportunity to kind of take a step in the right direction, in a biblical direction of setting out, I would say, a holistic, God-honoring, beautiful, workable framework for sexuality. And so I would say for, for biblical counselors who are trying to use this book at their church or uh, trying to pass it along to their leaders, that's that's really what I would say the book's aim is for. It is to help us be better disciples, uh, specifically in this realm. How do we talk about sexuality? How do we talk about issues of guilt and shame? Uh, how do we help the struggler? How do we how do we do these things that I would say are not specifically the realm of, say, a quote unquote professional counselor, even a, a lay counselor. But this is this is a part of what it means to grow in godliness in the body. Uh, so we really wanted to make sure that 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 the book and that the chapters were really aimed at that level of, of discipleship. Yeah. No, thank you. That's really good. And I mean, even just as a parent, you know, we have two boys and we're having those conversations and trying to help them think about sexuality and the way that God has designed them and and sexuality to work. Uh, So having these chapters and these resources is a is a really helpful thing, even just for for parents, because we are the primary disciples of our children. Right. So, yeah. No, that's fantastic. The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the heartbeat of the Bible, brings life-changing hope and power to real people with real problems. Inspired by that conviction, the Gospel for Disordered Lives provides an introductory guide to the theory and practice of Christ-centered biblical counseling, intended to serve as foundational textbook for students in Christian colleges, universities, seminaries, and graduate schools. The book also provides a useful overview that working counselors can reference in their ministry context. Additionally, it can serve pastors and current counseling practitioners as a helpful refresher and a resource for common counseling problems. I love this new textbook. I'm going to use it in my training, and I hope you will too. Uh, one, one of the things I'll jump to, the, in, as far as the questions go, towards the end of the book, building on that concept of, of, of drawing out a good theology of sexuality, you guys don't, you definitely don't approach it from a just, here's all the bad stuff, don't do it. Uh, it's definitely not what your books uh, do. And you actually talk about true beauty and the importance of understanding true beauty. Um, so tell, tell our audience a little bit about those sections and what is true beauty? Why is it important for us to understand it and acknowledge it? Uh, and, and how does that help us in this fight to, for sexual purity? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I when Deepak and I were talking about the book, I I pressed him hard. I mean, it wasn't hard to to convince him. But I said we got to have a chapter in there on on beauty because I think a lot of the times when I've read books on pornography and pornography struggle, Curtis, to your point, it is a lot of that. It's like don't do this, don't look at this, et cetera, et cetera. But we have not, I don't think, done a good job at I, I think retrieving and reclaiming uh, a, a significant portion of ground, and that is saying, hey, not only this is disordered and broken and bad, but this is what we're calling you to, and what we're calling people to, I think, is is a God-honoring beauty. There's a lot of philosophical discussions on what true beauty is, and you can read about that if you're interested. We don't get it. We don't get into the weeds in that, but what we do say is that a part of the discipleship process is reorienting ourselves to uh, I, I would say reclaim and retrieve categories of what is truly beautiful. And for me, that would be what is in line with God's character, what truly reflects God's character. I think I, I think nature, for instance, is, is a hugely underutilized area uh, in this for the biblical counselor, for the disciple or the helper to say, hey, listen, this is, 
you know, the Psalms tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, how can we how can we begin to move away from these images which give us a false beauty and a false portrayal of what's good and right and beautiful? And how can we begin to reorient our gaze, retrain our senses uh, to really appreciate and ultimately, I'd say, worship? what is truly beautiful and good. And that's just not a lot. I think that you, uh, you don't get that a lot from, I would say, uh, books on pornography. Again, it's a lot of what not to do, what not to look at, but here's, here's what we do want you to look at. Here's what we do want you to set, what we do want you to set your mind on and your gaze on and your affections on. So I think that that's an important part that that's in the book that would definitely be worth worthwhile a uh, worthwhile place of discussion for the discipler. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting cuz it's it's definitely broader than just uh the physical attraction of another person uh because in like you said the philosophical concepts of the true, the beautiful and the good and you can get into from Genesis all the way through scripture the fact that God loves things that are beautiful, true and good. Um but one of the things that I've I think is helpful and appreciative and appreciate about your books, um, and necessary for us to talk to is we need to be able to allow people to recognize yes there are beautiful people out there, um, but what where it gets twisted is in our hearts that we turn something that is beautiful and I think there's a phrase in your book I maybe I may misquote it where it says like every, pornography distorts our thinking into thinking that every woman is a potential porn star. Right or for vice versa or whatever your your preference, unfortunately sexually is that those people who are attractive become selfishly we turn them into something that'll satisfy our desires. But we need to be able to. But in the the one solution is therefore don't look at any beautiful people or don't even say they're pretty, right? Because that'll arouse your lust. But it's like that's one. It's foolish and it's we're lying to ourselves to say, no, there aren't beautiful people out there, but it's like, what does that, what should that cause in our hearts instead of lust? So, um, yeah, anyway, just, I could think, <laughs> go on and on about this concept, uh, for a while. So Kurt, could, could I add just so that you can say whatever you want of, to. All right. <laughs> so just a lot of people with methodology end up stopping at the point where porn is no longer an addiction but they don't take the step in thinking through how do I revitalize that person's sense of beauty? Mm-hmm. So this gets fundamentally to the process of helping someone out. If we, we sell ourselves short by just stopping when the addiction has taken over, but we realize the implications of the addiction of how it's distorted the person's perception of beauty. And then you send them off to get married and you get all kinds of bad junk in marriage as a result of not having done the extra step which is now helping them grab a vision for what true beauty is first and foremost in God. Uh, and you, you get that, you get someone who gets that man. It like, it turns a person around. Like you give them a vision for that. It like, it transforms their understanding of what life is like, not just how to recognize beauty. Cause you capture a vision of what God intended and who God is in particular. Yeah. yeah I, th- I think to maybe a metaphor would be sometimes I feel like, our instruction on sexual sin is put blinders on. And really what you, I think you guys are encouraging people to do is not to put blinders on, but to put on new, you know, have our eyes open to reality instead of wearing these distorted lenses of lust. So no, it's, it's wonderful. Um, 
getting into the book a little bit, you point out some different aspects of our the conception of addiction in the book. I think you point to five biblical constructs or uh, conceptions of addiction in the book. Could you share with our audience what those are? All right, well, voluntary you know, slavery is the first one. <laughs> <laughs> voluntary slavery. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a that's a that's very much an Ed Welch concept that we yep. we stole and made it as the first one because it's so fundamental understanding. We yep. vo- we choose so often, we habitually choose so often that eventually we get enslaved. That's the fr- that's the first one. Double mindedness is the second one. That's pretty typical uh, of that. Like, not only do I want to love the sin, but I also want to reject the sin. Um, at the same time, that's characteristic. Foolishness is just right out of Proverbs. We know what wisdom looks like uh, by reading scripture and seeing what a wise person is. A wise person is one that submits himself ultimately to the Lord, but foolishness is the opposite. So the proverbial fool is fascinating. Part of what we did in that section is we just listed out the verses on foolishness, and it was striking how many of those verses look like an addict. And that, that's mostly the section. It's listing the, the verses related to proverbial fool that parallel what you typically see in addiction. Idolatry, like what has taken over your life so much that it now distorts your worship of God? And then disordered desires. The fundamental to an addiction is the fact that our desires have now overrun us, overtaken us, and have become really central to how we operate. Um, so I, I nicknamed them in the book, ruling desires. Um, it's kind of a similar concept to idolatry. It's just, it's more focused specifically on the desire terminology in scripture. And and can I follow up on that just real quick D is especially on the desire language, I think, and we, I, I interacted with somebody else who's written on this area. And I think, again, another area where we've not done well, as we've said with porn, hey, the desire's bad, kill the desire, put the blinders on. And, and, and fundamentally, I think we realize, no, we're made to be desiring beings, we're made to be worshiping beings, but it's that these desires have become significantly disordered. And so what reorders and reorients, again, whatever word you want to use, we obviously we believe the gospel does, right? That the gospel says, here's here are the parameters in which these desires are meant to flourish and, and and are meant to actually be wonderfully enjoyed. And that's within the context of a, a man and a husband in a covenant marriage. Anything outside of that is a distortion. And so it's not so much that we don't want people to have any desire whatsoever, which I think sometimes has been an older method, but we want those desires that you have to be framed, shaped, oriented, uh, and run through the grid of scripture and the gospel. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it. The, part of the reason I wanted you to highlight that is because we use that terminology, addiction, and sometimes people, uh, sometimes we're afraid to use it, or sometimes we don't see how much scripture actually talks about it and the fact that, you know, this is a newer concept so or idea, but really you draw out all these biblical descriptions of, of, what, of what we're describing here. And as much as you want to give credit to Ed Welch, I think he stole it from, from Paul or the Holy Spirit. So you know, <laughs> uh, we'll give credit, credit where credit is really due. So, uh, but no, that's, that's helpful. You also uh, identify four different fronts on which the battle uh, over, I mean, and in one sense, it's not, it's broader than pornography, but just the mental lust and the battle for sexual purity takes place. Um, could you share with us, our audience, what those four fronts are? And I know you can't go in depth on each one because you break it up quite a bit. 
in the book or go into it very deep in the book. So. We, we talk about the four A's being access, anonymity, appetite, and atheism. And, you know, when I've, you know, been doing interviews and talking about the book, the way I like to describe them is they're, 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 they're definitely fronts on the battle, but they're kind of like four spheres to begin to think through and to begin to analyze uh, your individual struggle with pornography. And they're all four different facets that I think, uh, you know, there's bleed over and there's, there's definitely shared, uh, shared content in between them. But sometimes I think what happens is, uh, especially in a struggler dynamic, just one or maybe two of the areas get addressed. So, you know, maybe we uh, talk about the appetite and we talk about desires needing to be, you know, like, hey, cut off those desires, you know, maybe you just need to get married or uh, maybe it's the access point of, hey, you know, you know, cut the internet or cut this subscription or whatever. And again, I, I would want to say those are well-intentioned, I think, uh, points of counsel and encouragements. But what we're saying here is I think this forefront plan we feel like is holistic and actually I think will help the struggler get the most traction um, in their life and to help them get victory uh, in this particular area of their life. Yeah, no, and it's a helpful for those four categories help. Uh, they're memorable <laughs> and they can help the person who's wrestling, uh, like you said, the self-analysis, because you get into that saying, hey, you need to ask yourself what's going on on these access point. Am I living as an atheist in these moments or or in general, um, et cetera? So that's that's really helpful. D, anything else to add on that? Yeah, I mean, we, we start with access because access is the first first line of defense in the battle and slowing down people. They have to be brutal about cutting off the access points. Anonymity, you, you can hide. And that's typical of this. Shame causes us to hide. And so if you can get rid of the anonymity, that's typical of this problem, then you need to, you can actually do a lot toward getting someone to come out of the darkness and, and into the light. Um, atheism, you know, you go behind all the reasons that are typical for someone to do it, whether it's like looking for affirmation, escape, entitlement, selfishness, but there's a fundamental disposition towards God in everything that we do. And so faith or doubt, so that atheism is just a, a fancy way for us to fit the doubt category in there. Um, it's just saying like, okay, we begin to question whether God is good, whether he's sovereign, whether he can actually help me change. How typical is that for someone struggling with porn? They get farther enough down the line, they're convinced that they can't change, and even worse, that God can't change them. And essentially, they have given up the battle at that point. And then appetite, it's just the other, it's our way to describe desires. There's an, there's an appetite that drives them to get what they want. Uh, so they get enslaved to that appetite, then that appetite drives everything that they do. So we all want something. It's whether our desires are oriented to wanting the right things and how much the wrong things that we want begin to rearrange and become central to our life. Um, so th those are the four A's, four things that are active ingredients in the moment when someone acts out. So when, when somebody chooses to sin, we think those are the four ingredients, like you think of four ingredients of a recipe, that, that compose of that moment of sinning. And we need to get a hold of all four of those ingredients begin to turn around the problem. Not just one, but if you really want to turn this around, you yeah. really got to deal with all four. Yeah. yeah. And, and you bring those up both in the, 
the plan of how to overcome this, but also in the aftermath, you know, when you fall, uh, reassessing in those moments, those, those four areas, um, and what took place and how to, how to prevent future failure as well. So no, it's really, really helpful. Uh, you mentioned the weariness and you address this at the end of, of rescue skills, both the weariness for the struggler, but also the weariness for the discipler. And I know our audience is, is largely made up of disciplers, but I'm sure there's some strugglers in this area as well. Um, what encouragement insights from either that chapter or just your own thinking might you give to somebody who's, who's weary at this time? Yeah, I would say when, when I talk to people uh, who are struggling with pornography, weariness and fatigue is definitely something that comes up quite a bit. So we knew we wanted to include a, a topic on that. And, you know, one of the dynamics that, you know, I think both the disciple and the struggler can think through is I think a lot of times that weariness comes from trying to uh, trying to kind of do it on your own, honestly, trying to kind of put together some half-hearted strategies, some uh, some accountability here, cutting off some access here, but not really truly doing it in the power of the Spirit, which I think ultimately does lead to a weariness. And, and on the helper side, too, I think uh, we can get easily fatigued when um, people that we're meeting with or talking with don't do exactly what we want. And I think a lot of times that reveals something more about our own heart, right? Like, why aren't you uh, why aren't you changing more uh, more quickly or, or, or whatever it might be? And so I think we tried to put both encouragement, like you said, both for the struggler and the helper there. And, and honestly, I would say, at least from from DNI's perspective, that's why the the location of these relationships, the helper, the discipler, the roommate, the best friend, ideally are within the context of a local church, because the local church is built for long-term, long-haul type of care, where these relationships have time to grow in their depth, uh, in, in the way that they hold each other accountable, in the way that they build friendship and relationship. Um, that's one of the benefits of kind of, I would say, centering these types of relationships within the context of a local church. I think it I think it helps not completely eliminate weariness, but put you into a better context where you're more equipped for the long haul. Do you any any additional thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the defeatist attitude that that someone has after they have gone through this for such a long time is pretty prototypical of it. Someone who has gone through a battle and has essentially given up um, or, you know, PTSD, they're like, after the battle, they're so worn out, they just don't know how to fight anymore. And there's all kinds of implications once you get to that point of how to give someone hope when they're hopeless give someone hope when they don't think change can happen anymore. But that that's where the discipler has got to be a job description. We offer in the book is like someone who holds on to hope for the person who's hopeless. Mm-hmm. Like I I've got to enter in because I know the gospel can change people and recognize that, you know, I'm not perfect. So I'm not going to see everything. Uh, there are people who have tried to invest in it may have not gone well. And, Yet I have an opportunity stepping in and helping someone who's been struggling with this for years to probably look at things in a different way, to encourage them and persevere in my love for them, to help them to own certain insights in the gospel that they've never been willing to grab hold of, uh, and to be able to turn their affections towards something that's different. And so we talked about the affections earlier, desires towards, in the right context, a husband and wife. The greater affection is then their affection for Christ. 
which under porn is often dampened. Um, and so we want to see the spirit revive that kind of affection because that's the wind in the sails for anybody. Um, but recognizing that, you know, for a weary person who's been in this for a long time, it's not a Burger King fix. It's, it's, it's a long turn. Yeah. I mean, we, we can't prepare something and turn this around real quickly. Uh, you can, you can get that at a fast food place. You cannot get that in porn struggles. Uh, you, you need a, a significant amount of investment over the long haul. So I, if a guy walks in, it's like, I'm a pastor and I'm not going anywhere. So I'll be in this for you. However long it takes, if you're willing to get, get help from me. And so I've been in the trench, not just one or two or three, but with some guys, four or five or six years. And though the battle may be very different four or five or six years in, so when a guy first shows up, he may have been struggling, you know, multiple times a day, multiple times a week. We may be, it's like once or twice a year at the most, once we're six years in. And yet still that once or twice a year at the most is still too much. They want to be completely free. And so I want to, I want to also give them a vision for what freedom is like and gently, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways in which I have to lead from, from ahead by helping them follow me into things. There's a lot of ways in which in struggling with porn, I'm leading from behind or alongside. I'm just literally pointing them forward and just saying, I love you. Let's just keep going. Uh, over the long haul, we can get there. Um, but giving someone a vision for what a porn free life is, I think most weary people have no idea what that is. It's, it's, it's beyond their grasp right now, what that could possibly be. And so I want to help them look over the boundaries of their pornography struggle and see that on the other side of the fence. And if I could do that, I mean, that gives them a vision for where they could head. Yeah, and absolutely. I think the, the things that kept coming to my mind were, were Psalm 19 and Psalm 23 of just of dwelling with a Savior who leads us beside still waters, who restores our soul and, and digging into the scripture. And, and like you said, for those who are battle weary, um, it can be hard to even find quiet waters, <laughs> but making sure we carve out time to go out. And, and that's where I appreciate ending with the, the what is true beauty and helping us remind that when we really are basking in God's glory, because um, the reality is, is there's going to be another fight and another fight and another fight and another fight until we come face to face with Jesus. Um, but taking time to get out and see the true beauty that's there with him and worship him instead of these other things is what's going to, for me, I know personally restore my weariness at times and, and help me continue on in the fight as well as a, as a struggler and as a discipler. So, well, we've got, we're over our time a little bit, but it's been great conversation. So I want to transition to our, our segment, two minute favorites, but since there's two of you, I'm going to give you four minutes. So what I'll do is I'll, mm. I'll start a timer. I'll ask a question and we'll have Jonathan, you answer first and then D you answer second. All right. So here we go. What is your favorite food? Uh, probably fried chicken. Anything Italian or Indian or Chinese. All right. Favorite, <laughs> favorite color? Blue. Mine's blue too. Don't take mine. Uh, <laughs> favorite, favorite sport? 
Oh, dear. I'm, I'm not a sports guy, but probably basketball if I have to. Uh, watching NFL football uh, uh, and playing soccer. All right. Uh, favorite sports team? Got to go with either the Browns or the Cavs. Uh, I don't, can't believe I'm going to confess this online, but I am a Dallas Cowboys fan. But here, there, uh, <laughs> you're on record. All, the people, all the people in Washington, D.C. are going to dread me now. Uh, favorite gift you've ever received? Oh, gosh, I think you've asked me this before. Uh, I mean, just in short, I just say anything from my wife just because she puts so much thought into it. And I know that whatever, you know, whatever it is, there's a story behind it and there's meaning behind it. I would echo Jonathan. Exactly. My wife is very thoughtful and thinking through what is he really, what's really helpful to him right now and giving something like that. Favorite gift you've ever given. Oh gosh. I don't know. I love, I mean, I love giving gifts. I love giving gifts to, you know, other people, to my family, to my kids. I, I don't know. I'd probably just say it's just the everyday things. I, I love being able to like take somebody out for a meal or, go on a walk with somebody or, you know, get them something that they've been asking for. So yeah, I love giving gifts. I think it's a, just, I love doing it. I gave my wife for her birthday, uh, a 20th anniversary gift of going to Niagara Falls. Uh, mm-hmm. since that was on her bucket list of three things left. And I, I, I prepped her beforehand at the beginning saying, Hey, what's on your bucket list? Remind me before she opened up the gift just to kind of set it up. You need to put, have her put some more things on the list. Uh, favorite, <laughs> favorite word. Oh gosh. Favorite word. Probably love. Probably love. Am I allowed to say Jesus? Yes. I mean, we're three yeah, questions. You are. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's illegal because you're like Christian Bible, Jesus and scripture counseling. That's right. Uh, least, least favorite word. Oh, oh dear. I don't know. D you, you, you got a word. Oh yeah. I got a word. Satan. <laughs> okay. I'll go with, I'll go with porn. I'll go with porn. You go with Satan. <laughs> okay. Uh, favorite book, uh, favorite book of the Bible. Uh, Job. You know, I, I, I love the gospel of John, but I, I also have fallen in love with Philemon. Just a whole picture of forgiveness between Philemon and Nessus. I just taught it this past Sunday. So it's like, it's fresh on my heart. Uh, Favorite book outside of scripture? Uh, Les Mis uh, by Victor Hugo. Wow. Uh, uh, A river, uh, peace like a river. Oh, life Uh, finger. Yes. It's like, uh, it's a favorite fiction book. That's the one thing I buy people if they haven't read fiction. Yes. He's wonderful. Favorite candy? Uh, I'm not a candy fan, but if I, if I have to probably peanut butter M&Ms. I chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. And did I say chocolate? (laughs) You're such a chocolate fan. You can't have it, right? (laughs) Well, I I had nine years of not being able to have it. (laughs) My son called, my son got my wife to call the doctor this past father's day and find out if I'm allowed after nine years. And the doctor said, occasionally he is now allowed to have it. All right. Well, our timer is up. Uh, I cheated there on the end with that last comment. But, hey, that should have been the best gift you ever got, is your son calling the doctor for Father's Day. (laughs) Uh, That's true. That's true. Uh, Very good. Well, brothers, thank you so much for being with us on 1514 today. Thank you, Curtis. Glad to do it.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of 1514. If you'd like to find out more about the Biblical Counseling Coalition, you can visit our website at biblicalcc.org. Special thanks to our podcast engineer, James Wills, who does all the post-production editing to make this podcast sound so wonderful. also want to thank my assistant, Carrie Felton, for helping to arrange these interviews. And a special thanks to Andrew Riddell, who composed and recorded the music we use on 1514. I hope you have a wonderful day.